Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the exiled Russian critic who spent years in jail at the hands of Vladimir Putin, joins us along with journalist, author and former BBC Moscow correspondent Martin Sixsmith to discuss the future of Russia, Ukraine and what the West might be capable of doing about it all. We've got a really engaging and thought-provoking discussion coming up, but if you want to hear even more revelations about how Russia and Putin got to where they are today, then do hit subscribe for our bonus audience Q&A, which features answers to questions such as Mikhail's thoughts on Alexei Navalny and about China's role as an ally to the Russian regime. Hit the link in the description or head to iq2premium.supercast.com to hear more. You can also, of course, explore more of the themes we're hearing about today in Kodakov and Sixsmith's new book, The Russia Conundrum, How the West Fell for Putin's Power Gambit and How to Fix It. But now, back to today. This podcast was recorded in early September when the sad news of the passing of Her Majesty the Queen was just reaching the UK public. We were also joined on stage by Hodorkovsky's translator, Elena Cook. Let's hear now from our event chair, the journalist, broadcaster and presenter of BBC Radio 4's World Tonight, Ridla Shah. Good evening, everybody. Um, I was going to begin tonight by saying we meet at a time of upheaval and uncertainty. I wasn't expecting to acknowledge the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of this long-serving, very dutiful monarch. It really is the end of an era. I was going to, though, mention the biggest conflict on the European continent since the Second World War, which is taking lives and wreaking destruction in Ukraine. This week, the Russian state-owned company Gazprom halted gas supplies into Europe along Nord Stream 1, which, of course, is the pipeline that goes to Germany. The Kremlin issued a stark warning that supplies wouldn't resume until Western sanctions against Russia ended. It was also the week when the United Kingdom installed a new Prime Minister. Liz Truss, the former Foreign Secretary and long-serving Cabinet Minister, was elected leader of the Conservative Party on Monday. Her predecessor, of course, Boris Johnson, was very forthright in his support for Ukraine, and he forged a very strong personal relationship with President Zelensky. I think he described President Putin's actions as evil. It seems likely that the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, will continue that stance. Writing in The Telegraph recently, she said, under my leadership, President Zelensky will have no greater ally at this dark hour than the UK. Well, it's those news stories that set the backdrop for this increasingly fraught and dangerous relationship between Russia and the West. 
I'm delighted to say, though, we have two speakers on the stage with us tonight who have plenty of first-hand experience of navigating that relationship with mixed fortunes, I think it could be said, and will help us to understand things much more clearly. Mikhail Khodorkovsky is an exiled Russian businessman, formerly the head of UCOS, Russia's largest private oil company. He was widely believed to be the country's richest man before his arrest in 2003, when he was imprisoned for almost 10 years on charges of tax evasion and fraud, charges which he denied vigorously and defended. He now lives in exile and works to promote democracy and to strengthen civil society in Russia through his foundation, Open Russia. Mikhail is accompanied by his translator. Thank you very much in advance, Elena. Live translation is an extremely tough gig and uh, Elena does a fabulous job. And I'm also joined by Martin Sixsmith, journalist, writer, and former BBC correspondent in Moscow, Washington, Brussels, and Warsaw. He's the author of non-fiction titles, including Russia, The Wild East, and Putin's Oil, and The Litvinenko File. Together, Martin and Mikhail are the co-authors of the new book, The Russia Conundrum, How the West Fell for Putin's Power Gambit and How to Fix It. Welcome to you all. Let's not beat about the bush and get stuck in. Mikhail, relations between Russia and the West are at rock bottom. If we think of the West as the US, NATO and its allies, can they stop Putin? Uh, Greetings, everyone. There are lots of doubts at the moment how the events are going to pan out. But I think this war that Putin embarked upon is not just the problem for Ukraine or for Russia, but for him as well, personally. But this war is bringing his end closer. Whether it's going to be Ukraine that's going to bring this end closer or NATO, we don't know at the moment. But this end is inevitable. How would you describe President Putin? This is the biggest problem I face when I talk to Western politicians and leaders, because they still have this tendency to treat Putin as a colleague, a man similar to them. This is not the case. So when I tell them that in order to understand Putin, they shouldn't really talk to experts from the foreign office. They should go to a crime-ridden area, to the local police station, where any police inspector would tell them what a normal gangster mafioso is like and how you deal with them. <laughs> He's a gangster. Why are you so confident that his end will come? Uh, I'm just look at Putin's history. From the age of 17, he has been working with or in the KGB. And what was the KGB in the USSR? It was an organization above the law. Yes, there was party control, but that organization didn't think that law is anything to do with it. When Putin's term in the KGB was over, he went to work for the mayor of St. Petersburg at the time, Mr. Sobchak. St. Petersburg in Russia at the time was similar to Chicago uh, in the 1930s, a gangster town. And Putin's uh, task was to establish relations between criminal gangs of St. Petersburg and also the law enforcement agencies of St. Petersburg, which at the time didn't really, were not very much different from gangsters. So he helped them to establish a kind of union. Uh, when he moved to the Kremlin, his first job, or the first thing he did, was to find some prostitutes to compromise the prosecutor general at the time. So this is the man you're dealing with at the moment, all of us are dealing with. A fallible gangster, Martin. A bit of context then. How would you compare 
the current conflict with President Putin, with the Cold War and with the Soviet Union? Are we talking about two very different things? Uh, well, there's a lot of parallels. Um, and we had a period where we were very confident the Cold War was over. Um, very competent historian Robert Service wrote a book called The End of the Cold War. <laughs> I suspect he may be revi revising it. Um, it uh, I mean, the, the strange thing is the way that Moscow related to the West for all those years under Soviet communism was driven by ideology. The Cold War was the clash of political, social systems and beliefs. Um, but now it seems much more driven by self-interest. So um, Putin's opposition to the West seems to stem from the personal hurt that he felt at the end of the Soviet Union, which he took really as a sort of personal humiliation. Yeah. And it seems to me that he's spent 20 years with that hurt festering inside him, and it's finally overflowed in uh, February this year. Um, but it's, it, it's f from within him and people like him. Um, and it's very personal for Putin because it's, it, it isn't an ideology-driven conflict, however much he pretends it is. It's very personal. And it's kind of financial as well because he's a man who spent a long time enriching himself from state monies in Russia, uh, money that should have been spent on roads and infrastructure and health service and pensions. And um, you can only do that for a certain length of time before people start to get upset with that. So if you're a dictator and you're worried that you're in the eye of the storm and people may be moving against you, what's the standard response? It's start a war, isn't it? So, you know, if we look at the wars that he started, they all seem to have coincided with a plunge in his popularity rating. So 2008, he was very unpopular. So he invaded Georgia. Georgia. 2014, again, his ratings were plummeting and he moved into Crimea and next Crimea. And in the run-up to 2022, uh, this year, what was happening, Navalny was coming back, um, discontent was you know, overflowing onto the streets. Um, so what, again, is his response? It's you know, to start a war. Interesting. Mikhail, if we go back then, you were a young man in your late 20s when the Soviet Union began to unravel and eventually collapse. Describe what it was like to live through that time. I was quite young when the Soviet Union ceased to exist. In fact, like the rest of my peers, I couldn't, have, I couldn't imagine that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. And when back in 1991, together with my friends, I went to defend our Russian White House, the parliament, from the coup, we were defending this new life, this new economy that Gorbachev had brought about, where we would feel a role for ourselves in it. We didn't realize that as a result of our actions, the Soviet Union was going to collapse. But now, looking back, I realize that it was inevitable. And in fact, it had started many years before that day when we went to defend the White House. What in particular would you look back to? What events or changes, really, that, that began, if you like, the bricks coming out of the wall? What? Uh, it's actually being hotly debated today because the war that's happening now is also another possibility for the fragmentation of Russia this time. 
And there are two ideas that exist as far as this particular topic is concerned. Uh, the first is purely economic. So we had Kasigin, who was the prime minister in the 1970s, and his idea was this soft transition to capitalism. That decision wasn't made, wasn't adopted, but it could have been. But at the time, the oil field of Samatlov was discovered in Russia. And all talk about changing the system came to nothing. So this was the economic explanation of why the Soviet Union collapsed. But there is another, more romantic notion, and I think it's closer to the truth. The Soviet Union was a country of one idea. Ourselves, or rather our parents and our grandparents, thought that they could show the world this new way forward. And doubts over this idea were not cast straight away by the world in the 1920s and 1930s. A lot of people around the world thought that the Soviet Union could be that model for the rest of mankind, of the future of mankind. So when that idea came to nothing, the uh, country that was symbolizing that idea also collapsed. It was as simple as that. <laughs> Martin, when you look back on that time, do you think there were signs? We, talk, we can say now it was inevitable, but do you think living in Russia at the end of the 80s that you could see the signs that the collapse was on its way? Uh, no, and uh, anybody who said they could, I think, uh, you know, it, hindsight is a fantastic gift. Mm. Um, but uh, I was there through the end of the 80s up to the coup that Mikhail was mm. talking about, and um, it came out of the blue. I mean, obviously, there were signs um, in terms of the um, Soviet republics agitating for independence from uh, Moscow. Um, Gorbachev sort of took the shackles off um, and granted the people the right of Glasnost, the right to talk about things. He didn't want communism to collapse. He wanted mm. to strengthen communism. He wanted to strengthen the Soviet Union. But, he, you know, in the sort of old cliches, he'd let the genie out of the bottle, you know, give the people an inch, they take a mile. Um, and so there were signs, you know, and with, at the beginning of 1991, uh, I was in Riga when the um, the, the, the fighting happened between the pro-independence and the pro-union forces. So there were signs that things were sort of crumbling. But it, that August 1991 came as a massive, massive su surprise. And I think we kind of overreacted because I, mean, I look back at my reports for the BBC back then and it was um, as if a sort of, you know, a cloud had been lifted. Um, you know, communism has gone and now Russia will be like us. Russia yes. will be a, a, a member of the international community of nations, respecting the same liberal political and economic values that, that we um, believe in. And looking back, I mean, I just realized how incredibly self-deluding I was. Um, it was a delusion that lasted for some time. It, it did. Though, it, it did. I mean, that's, at least that's, a decade. That's a really interesting thing. The 1990s, obviously, the Yeltsin years, but even into the Putin era. Mm. So for the first four or five years of Putin in power, people forget that he was at least paying lip service to the ideals of liberal democracy and greater integration into the world community and friendship with the West. And it does raise a very interesting question. Was he genuinely believing in those ideas? And then he's changed into the sort of swivel-eyed dictator in the years that happened afterwards. And therefore, was the West partly at fault by not reciprocating his willingness to integrate into the world community? Or more likely, was he mouthing these values um, and not believing in them. And, you know, Mikhail had first-hand experience of how Putin was able to convince people of things which were not necessarily true. 
hold that thought because I definitely want to come back to it. It's really important. But I do want to just go back to the time of Yeltsin for a moment. This is the 1990s. Everything's changing. You made an awful lot of money under Yeltsin. Uh, I think they were, they were, you became an oligarch, right? What we talk about as oligarchs, you bought these share vouchers from ordinary people. There was these loans that you gave at one point to, to Yeltsin to prop up his government. But when you look back on that, it, it, we're critical now, I think, of oligarchs. People speak of them very badly, but you were part of that system. How do you reconcile that in your mind? Well, with the new economic trends that they started in 1986, very few people actually decided to go into business, were brave enough to go into business. Well, just think about it yourselves. On the one hand, there is this law about this new economy, new enterprises, where you could actually go into private business. And at the same time, there is a criminal law where it says that if you actually work in business and are an entrepreneur, this is criminalized, it's a criminal offense, and you could actually end up being imprisoned for many years. Uh, for the first five years, my colleagues and I would go to work and actually greet ourselves. Uh, oh, you're still here. You're not in prison until the, that actual uh, law was abolished. So there were few people who decided to go into business. Some of them, those who did go, uh, became very successful. And then comes 1991 when we are told, aha, everything you've made is going to be expropriated from you. So then obviously we just took, some took weapons, others took bricks and went to defend what we had made. And then came 1993 when again we were told that no, you're going to give up everything you have earned. Again, we took up arms or bricks and went to defend so if anyone here thinks that doing business under Yeltsin was just sort of reading, leafing through a book and nothing else, that wasn't the case at all. We had nothing like that, what, what Putin's cronies have today, yachts, palaces. There was nothing like that then. So when people ask me, so what was my wealth at the time? What was it like? How do I imagine it? I can actually tell you straight away. We were actually developing the new oil field in Western Siberia, the Priokskaya field. And in order to reach that oil field from the railway station, you had to cross 180 kilometers over marshes, over bogland. So we actually laid a road across the marshes. And just have this picture in your mind. So you're flying over it in a helicopter and you have 180 kilometers worth of trucks, one after another, filled with sand and gravel. This is how I saw my wealth. This was my wealth. But when my business was taken away from me, in fact, I didn't need the money. I wasn't really interested in money itself. What was interesting for me is those trucks, those bridges, thousands of people, thousands of huge machines working there. That was interesting. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support.
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You were daring, you were a risk taker. Martin, I'm gonna bring you in here, just briefly. It was a wild west though, that 90s period. In order to survive, you needed to be made of stern stuff. I'm gonna put it politely. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was um, capitalism in red in tooth and claw. Mm. Um, uh, And I'm not sure the Russians really knew what capitalism was or what was gonna happen. And in the West, the capitalist system has sort of developed a whole series of sort of safeguards that people act within certain parameters. In Russia, there was none of that. You know, uh, business feuds were solved with a machine gun. um, uh, And nobody had any sort of sense of where everything was going. And because there were no safeguards, the whole thing went dreadfully wrong by the end of the 1990s. And um, Yeltsin was complicit in that as well because of the corruption in the Kremlin. and I think that gave democracy a, a bad name, or Western-style capitalist democracy a bad name. So when Putin came to power in 2000, he was on a pretty sort of easy wicket because he was going to turn things around, go back to the old tried and trusted system and make the trains run on time. And the public was open to that. 
I just quickly want to say before we start talking about Putin, and it is a fascinating subject, that remember you will be able to ask questions uh, very shortly. So do think about what you'd like to ask. We'll have mics in the hall. If you're watching online, you can ask questions by clicking on the Q&A button under the video screen. So to come to Putin then, you've made an awful lot of money. You've become the richest man in Russia. President Putin comes to power. You meet him. What did you think of him? How did you view him when you first met him? Uh, Putin. Putin is Putin a gangster, but he's a very talented gangster. So he'll show you the face you wanted to see. So when we sp he spoke to Bush Jr., he showed him a, a Democrat, a pure Democrat. I think I've got the quote in front of him, in uh, front of me. He said, I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul. Uh, yeah, but I wouldn't ridicule uh, Bush for that, because when I met Putin for the first time, he also appeared to me a young, liberal-minded, uh, energetic bureaucrat who was going, un unlike Yeltsin, to propel our country forward and its economy forward. There is sort of a linguistic specificity in Russia. So when somebody says the state in Russia, they don't just mean the bureaucratic apparatus, they actually mean the whole system a huge sort of vertically built system of the state. But if we want to talk about the people themselves, the citizens of the country, we say the country. So during one of my meetings with Putin, when we were discussing one of the objectives for my company, what I was supposed to be doing, he said, right, this you should be doing for the state. It's particularly important for the state. And then he corrected himself and said, no, actually, it's not important for the state. It is important for the country. So I actually thought, oh, what a modern thinking man. He actually understands the difference between the machine of the state and the people who live in the country. I would love to think that all that happened is that Putin actually changed. That would mean that I never made a mistake. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Because at the very same time, when he was talking to the collegiate of the FSB, the Russian Secret Services, he actually said, uh, I report that the first step of infiltrating the government has been fulfilled. Unfortunately, we only learned about it much later. I would like to stress once again that Putin, in fact, is quite an intelligent and rather dangerous man. Because look at the economy of Russia. It is still quite okay. Why is that? Why is it coping? Because people who are in charge of the Russian economy are the so-called systemic liberals. People like Kudrin, Nabiulina, Gref and others. And Putin actually listens to these people and their advice when they talk about the economy per se. But they have absolutely no influence on Putin uh, in terms of politics or on the decision how this wealth that they help, well, if not to earn, but to retain, it's going to be divided, where it's going to go. So as far as I was concerned, yes, I had some impact. I, uh, he would listen to me in terms of the development of the oil industry in Russia, but that was it. Right. When did you realize that he wasn't perhaps the person you thought he was going to be? How quickly did the situation change? Uh, we felt in 2003 that the country had come to an edge, to a sort of breaking point. There was going to be some kind of change. On the one hand, there were people who supported us, businesses, businessmen, for the economy to become more open, more transparent. 
For instance, we wanted to be part of the global supply chains. We wanted to create joint companies. Ourselves, we wanted to create a joint company with the Americans. On the other hand, there were those who thought it would be better for them if the, if the country was clo a closed country, because that would allow us the, them to accumulate wealth as part of their corruption. These interests were incompatible. So we decided to fight for the decision that, that Putin was about to make. Uh, when I say we, who, who is we? It's actually the Russian Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs, but also part of the presidential office, including the deputy head of that office at the time, Mr. Medvedev. If you read Medvedev's tweets today, you would never believe that that was the man. <laughs> he was the same man. Nevertheless, it is the same man. So I was selected as the person who was going to make that report about corruption. Well, why was I uh, chosen? Well, because very few people are actually ready to do something like that, are crazy enough to do something like that. And you can actually watch my report on YouTube still. It's there. I had used one of the examples when a state company lost $400 million in a very blatant way. They were just embezzled from that company. So as I was making that report, it became clear to me that Putin had already taken a decision. And that decision was not to go the way we wanted. What became evident is that he had already decided to make corruption into a tool that would allow him to manage the state machine, the state apparatus. It's the same law that reigns in the criminal gang. While you're part of that criminal gang, you have to commit crimes as the gang decides. Yes, but then you can share, you can use all the wealth, all the, all the riches of the gang. But if you don't commit the crimes, you're not one of us, you're not part of us. In fact, as it turned out, the 400 million that I was talking about lined Putin's pockets personally. I learned that fact seven years later. So seven years later, you were in prison. You spent 10 years in prison for opposing Putin. Others became silent. You carried on opposing him. How did that experience of imprisonment change you? Well, basically, when you spend 10 years in prison, when you're released, your value system has changed. For instance, for me, my take on business has changed. It's difficult for me to take it seriously anymore. Because now I, take, I, I look at it more as a game, because I realize that there are lots of things in life which are much more valuable. Life would, would seem to be one of them. Um, Martin, just thinking about where we've arrived now, how do you explain the naivety of the West and its assessment of President Putin? Um, I think it was sort of the triumph of hope over um, actual observation. Um, and I remember in, at the end of 1991 when George Bush Sr. made his New Year address to the um, American people, it was like a sort of baseball coach who'd won the World Series mm -hmm. because the, his whole take on the collapse of the Soviet Union was that we did it. You know, we Americans have stood up to this dreadful communist system for 70 years, but now it's gone. It's a triumph for American values. And it wasn't. I mean, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union came from within, within the Soviet Union. And I think that sort of mentality that now communism has gone, we can forget about Russia, was the way that the West approached Russia for the next 10 years at least, and probably more, that we've solved that problem. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, but they'd forgotten that the victors are in a pretty sticky wicket if they start preaching to the vanquished. And 
and the Americans did that, and a lot of people in the West did that. Politicians in the West did that. Um, and I don't know whether it was naivety or it was just sort of um, uh, blind faith that, you know, Russia would change and become something it hadn't been for a thousand years. Um, I don't want to say that, you know, the reason Putin is now so anti-Western is the fault of the West, because it's the fault of Putin and it's the, the fault of the people around Putin. But the West maybe didn't help uh, in the way that it treated uh, Putin and people like him after the collapse of the, the Soviet Union. Mikhail, when you think about the current situation, the war in Ukraine, there are those even now in the West, we've certainly heard uh, ideas like this from France and Germany, who talk about compromise, about a negotiated outcome with Putin. We've heard that a lot since February. What do you say? Is it possible, in your view, to have a, a negotiated settlement as things stand? Well, any war ends in, in, in an agreement. So it's unavoidable in this case as well. The question is when to strike such an agreement. Indeed. If we did it now, if there was a negotiation now. Unfortunately, you cannot strike an agreement with a person like Putin when he feels that he has the upper hand. He can actually deceive you if, if, you, want. <laughs> if you want. But this agreement is not going to be a real agreement. People often use this example of Putin's words about a cornered rat. People say, don't corner Putin, because if he has his back against the wall, he's going to be dangerous. But there is a difference between cornering a rat and allowing this rat to drink your blood. Perhaps it's okay releasing the rat at the moment when it feels that it has nothing else but flee to its hole and keep quiet there. That is the moment when you can let it go. But trying to neg negotiate with the rat when it feels that it's having the upper hand uh, means that actually this rat is going to call all the rest of its uh, uh, allies, other rats, and, and really finish you off. So unfortunately, I would like, I would have to agree with Joseph Borrell, the arch-European bureaucrat, who said that this uh, particular problem is going to be resolved on the battlefield, not at the negotiations table. Does that suggest that you believe there might be at some point regime change? I think there is a high likelihood that Putin's defeat in this war is going to destabilize his regime. The success of the regime change, however, depends on many different circumstances, including on the Russians themselves. And the more important question when the regime is actually changed, when there is a regime change, and inevitably there will be a regime change, is the way and the direction Russia is going to take after that. And this is why my colleagues and I are repeating to the West, please don't build another Iron Curtain. Because the regime change is going to happen, but Russia is going to be there still, it will remain. And Russia could become part of the solution, not part of the problem that we have today for the world under Putin. I'm conscious of the time, but one last one from me, which is the West is currently supplying arms to Ukraine. It's imposed sanctions on Russia. It's debatable how well those sanctions are working, but nonetheless, they're in place. What more could or should it do? Во-первых, я бы очень хотел, 
what would be really good if the West, when taking decisions vis-à-vis -vis Russia, involved professionals in those decisions, not just politicians. Sometimes I, I want to cry when I hear some of the ideas mooted around, particularly about the energy sanctions, because I do have, I do have some knowledge about the energy markets. For instance, the price cap, one of the ideas that's been hotly debated at the moment. This is nonsense, believe me. There are other mechanisms. I'm not going to waste your time discussing them now. But look, listen to professionals, please. Because those decisions that were taken 20 years ago about the energy policies of the Western countries are, in fact, today giving you the results that you see, the huge utility bills you have to pay. I think this is the result of unprofessional decisions being made, not political decisions, but by, by people who specialize in, in energy. Today we hear all kinds of ideas. Some of them are very sensible, others are a total nonsense. And I cannot understand why this nonsense is being listened to, because there are lots of really excellent experts even here in the UK. And in fact, the answer of what can be done or should be done now is quite simple. Weapons. I think uh, the weapons supplied to Ukraine that have been supplied to Ukraine so far are probably worth um, $10 billion, which is nothing compared with those losses in the energy field which is going to happen, that are going to happen now, and you have to pay out of your pocket. Had the supplies been not tens of billions of dollars, but $50 billion or more, the situation on the front would have been completely different now. And knowing Putin and understanding what he's trying to do, he, I know full well that he would not dare blackmailing Europe with his energy uh, like he's doing today. Well, there's a very clear answer there. Putin is going to die, and my generation is going to leave the stage as well, although I'm younger than Putin by 11 years. Uh, when I spoke to people in Germany, I asked them, when did people forgo Nazism, really, in the end? When did they get rid of it in themselves? And they all spoke and said, as one man, about 1968. It took a generation change. The, this is my hope, the new generation. Well, an amazing thought to end on. Thank you very much to Nikhar Kadakovsky and Martin Sitzberg. I'm just going to add, thank you all for your questions. They were fantastic, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of them. And get your copy of the book. It's a great read. But thank you all very much for coming. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.